So last week was Reformation Sunday. This week is Stewardship Sunday. Uh, going forward in the years to come, uh, we're going to do it that way. Um, not just because a new fiscal year begins in October and Reformation Sunday is always in October, but because uh, with this conviction in mind that the two are related, that, um, that the Reformation and that movement um, in many ways is still continuing on to this day and that we are but stewards of that movement. And so the way we view our giving, our generosity, our budget is, is so much more than paying bills. It's so much more than asking you to give to the church. It is we are stewards of a movement and the movement is nothing short than what was at the heart of the Reformation, which is the movement of the gospel. And so last year, last week, we looked at the Reformation, and I had several conversations with many of you who uh, were struck by the sacrifices of the Reformation, of the boldness and the courage, not just of Martin Luther, who had that, here I stand, I can do no other moment, but those who picked up the mantle of the Reformation and carried it on despite costs and loss of everything, including their own martyrdom. A lot of that came out in the little uh, lecture history that we did on Saturday morning. We talked about Patrick Hamilton, the first Scottish martyr of the Reformation, who was burned um, at the stake in St. Andrews, Scotland. And uh, for those of you who know St. Andrews, uh, tons of wind there, and the wind kept blowing the flames out, and it took six hours, six hours of excruciating pain for him to finally die. At one point, um, he was so charred, they didn't know if he was alive or dead. And they said, Sir Hamilton, are you dead yet? And he just raised his hand <laughs> as if to say, not yet. Keep going. We talked about Mary, a, a, a young lady, an 18-year-old girl, who they chained to a stake while the tide was out and said, you will recant before this tide comes in. And instead, she quoted scripture and sang the Psalms unto her death. We tell these stories of the past. We tell these stories of sacrifice and the Reformation. And we all leave feeling a little bit inadequate at how comfortable our Christianity is. Of how it comes at so little cost. And I even had some of you say... Would I even respond that way? I fear that I would be a coward. I fear that I would never be able to do what these people have done. And I can never know because that opportunity isn't before me. How do comfortable, prosperous American Christians die for a cause? Well, I would argue that opportunity is before you. And it's before me and it's before all of us. How do we, in our context, in our culture, what does death look like? What does martyrdom look like? How do we die for the cause of the gospel? By dying to our prosperity. The reformers recklessly died for the gospel. The opportunity before us is recklessly give for the gospel in ways that cost us so much. We don't die our lives, we, we die through lifestyles for the sake of the movement, for the sake of the gospel. And that is the very point that Paul is making here. It's wrong to assume that in the Bible, Paul is only speaking of and Jesus is only encountering 
uh, poor, impoverished, persecuted people. Certainly that is a major audience of the New Testament. But Jesus encountered the rich, and Paul was writing to the rich, particularly the letters to the Corinthians. The church in Corinth is perhaps the closest biblical context we have um, to 21st century American culture. It was pluralistic, cosmopolitan, luxurious, very hedonistic, uh, very um, overly sexualized, uh, culture privileged, uh, one of the wealthiest regions of the Roman Empire. So as the gospel begins to take root in Corinth, they are dealing with the complexities of a privileged, pleasure-seeking lifestyle now trying to discover what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And Paul's letters to the Corinthians are his attempt to disciple them through those complexities. And 2 Corinthians 8 is where he gets up into the business of their money. He addresses This is what it looks like, wealthy Corinthians, to be a follower of Jesus with your wealth. These converts have more wealth than most of the early Christians could ever dream of, just as American church has more wealth than the rest of our brothers and sisters around the world could ever dream of. And yet, they're not giving to the church. They're not giving to the church. And Paul rebukes them. But he does so in an interesting way, by way of example. Um. He points them toward an impoverished region just north of Corinth called Macedonia. Because what's happened in Macedonia is an outbreak of just senseless, reckless generosity. Paul wants the wealthy Corinthians to learn from the poor Macedonians. And that is my prayer for us as well this morning. That we would learn from this example in Macedonia, not to be like these poor people, but to learn what has driven these poor people into their reckless generosity. I'm going to ask two very basic questions from the passage this morning. What was happening, what was happening in Macedonia and why was it happening? So what was happening and why was it happening? Now again, this is a unique Sunday for our church. This is Stewardship Sunday, so in a lot of ways, this is family talk, okay? If you are a member, regular attender of TCPC, um, and this, this is in many ways for you. If you are uh, visiting with us and you would call another local church your home, um, would love for you to listen and take these applications of generosity back to your church, not to our church, to your church. If you don't have a church home, if you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, then maybe just listen. Because the reality of it is, is um, nonprofits want your money, Um, organizations want your money. We're always getting asked for money. Um, What I hope you find in this is not just, oh, another preacher asking his flock to give. But I hope you find in this something utterly unique. That the God who made you, created you, became poor for you. And out of an overflow of that generous gospel He now invites us to share and give as he has given to us. This is not the basic ask for money. This is the proclamation of the best news you will ever hear in your life. Two questions. What was happening? Why was it happening? What was happening? Look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. 
All right, let's break that down. So what's going on here is the churches are going through a severe persecution and it has led them de- left them dead broke. No money. The ESV translates the Greek extreme poverty that gets at the meaning, but literally it's translated down to the depth poverty. They have hit rock bottom, in other words. And yet, they rejoice. In fact, Paul labels it an abundance of joy. Their money has decreased and their joy has increased, which is so counterintuitive to the way we think. But as if this counterintuitive joy isn't strange enough, look what what happens next. Their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity. It's not just that their joy has increased in poverty, their generosity has increased. I love Paul's play on words here. If you picked it up. Their extreme poverty has overflowed into a wealth of generosity. So they, these people who have suffered much loss, but their response is much giving. They're broke when it comes to means, but they're wealthy when it comes to generosity. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. They gave according to their means is a common phrase then. What's that mean? There's a customary way in that day to refer to the Old Testament tithe. You've heard that language before, which was the regular giving of Israel to the nation of Israel, to the institution, uh, the temple specifically in the Old Testament. What the principle was, was the first fruits, the first 10% of what, um, of, uh, of what you have is given unto the institution of God. And then there's an often debated question is whether the tithe in the new covenant toward the new covenant institution of God, which is the church, the bride of Christ, whether that's still expected. That's debated a lot. Um, But you need to know it's an important question, especially for the Western church where only 4% of us do tithe. Our church is certainly above that average. TCPC is certainly above that average, but we are still nowhere close to being a tithing church as is our prayer, as you heard in our Sunday school class. If we were, we would never have to worry about meeting budgets or debt or anything like that. So this is an important question. Should the New Testament people of God tithe as the Old Testament people of God were commanded to do? I'm going to tell you what I believe, and honestly, this passage is one that guides my convictions on this. I believe the command to tithe from the Old Testament remains in principle which is an important nuance. Tithing no longer operates as a law as it did in the older covenant, uh, which were essentially it was a temple tax. Um, it was a tax that Israel, the nation of Israel, had to pay. In the new covenant, tithing does remain active, not as a law, not as a tax, but as a principle, which ultimately was the reason behind the Old Testament tithe. What was the principle behind the tithe in the Old Testament? Two things. God owns me, and God has blessed me. How is God's ownership demonstrated? A ritual where we give to him what already belongs to him. Where every month we give to God what's already his as a demonstration of everything I have is his. How is the blessing of God demonstrated? A ritual 
wherein we give to him a portion of what he has blessed us with as a demonstration of you have blessed me, you have given to me, and in response, I give unto you and your purposes. That's why God has his people tithe. He didn't need their money, okay? God didn't need a tax. He didn't need the money of Israel. But in giving their money, it was a continual reminder, God owns me, including everything I have, and God has blessed me, including everything I have. Now, principally speaking, has that changed in the coming of Christ? Absolutely not. It has only deepened. God owns us in a far deeper way. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, the scriptures say. He securely owns his people by purchasing them with the blood of Jesus. God has, rich, has, 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 has blessed us richly by the benefits of the blood of Jesus. You think Old Testament Israel was blessed? Here comes the Messiah who dies for the effective salvation of God's people. The relationship we have with God is described as a new and better covenant. So the principle does not just remain, it has deepened. So here's the point, principally speaking. Should we be tithing as the New Testament people of God? Should we be tithing to the institution of God, the church? Uh, the answer to that is we should be doing more. The tithe was the expectation of the older covenant. Now, under the new and better covenant, the tithe becomes our starting point, not our goal. We tithe to the church, and then we just get crazy and give to ministries, to missionaries, to needs in this world. Not our goal, but our starting point. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in our passage. Paul says, they gave according to their means. That's their tithe. Now continue on in verse 3. And beyond their means... Here's what he's saying. Even in their destitution, they continued to give what was customary. Even though they lost everything, they kept tithing to the church. But then they got insane. <laughs> they started giving beyond their means. Now, we're familiar with that language beyond their means, aren't we? This is our culture. We live in a culture that spends beyond our means from our government, which we just get so furious at because it's constantly operating beyond its means. But we can't rail against the government because this is an epidemic from our government all the way to us and our lives. Everyone seems to be living beyond their means. We, we live in houses beyond our means. We drive cars beyond our means. We go on vacations beyond our means. It's an epidemic. Well, the epidemic that is sweeping across Macedonia is a people who are giving beyond their means. That is, they can't afford to be doing what they are doing. They can't afford to be giving the way they're giving, meaning it's irresponsible. It's negligent. It's reckless. You would try to talk them out of it. And it gets even more amazing when you look at verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The Macedonians were the ones begging Paul to do them the favor of letting them give beyond their means. Do you know what that is? That is a reverse support raising. We just had a combined congressional meeting in here where I shared the budget for the year. I talked about the needs. I challenged us to give and meet those needs. What's happening in, in, in this situation is reverse. Begging Paul 
to let us extravagantly give. This is insanity. And Paul wants the same thing to be happening in Corinth. It's not this. Man, this is a crazy revival that's taking place in Macedonia. You're never going to believe what's going on here. It's, that's the model, and I want to see that in Corinth. Look at verse 7 as he turns his attention now to the Corinthians, and by extension to us. As you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness, and in, your lo- in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He's saying, I'm glad to see what's going on in your life. I'm glad to see what's going on in your congregation. But I want what's happening to the Macedonians to happen to you as well. Now, why does he want to see, why does he want to see this happening in Corinth? The answer will surprise you. It's not because Paul needs the wealthy Corinthians' money. That is completely secondary. Instead, he wants to see this happening because he will then know for certain that this church that he loves so much, the church in Corinth, truly is indeed in love with God. Verse 8, I say this not as a command. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty here. I'm not pressuring you. I'm not saying you have to do this. Not as a command, but to prove by their earnestness that your love also is genuine. Here's what he's saying. I'm trying to see if you're for real. To prove love genuine, to show love genuine. In Paul's mind, here's the point. In Paul's mind, giving authenticates love. And oh, how true that is, more than anything else. Do you want to know what you love? Follow your money. It will tell you. It is fail-proof. If you want to know what you love... Follow your money. It is easy to make the claim, I love Jesus. Anybody can do that. It comes at no cost, especially in our culture. It's a little more difficult, but still doable to morally adjust your life according to that claim. So I love Jesus, but I, I, I go to church, I change some behavior, I do these things. It's a little bit more difficult than saying, I love Jesus, but still very doable in your own strength. But giving. Now, I'm not just talking about any giving here. Giving that hurts. Giving that goes beyond the normal giving that anybody with a conscience and the need of a tax break will do. I'm talking about this type of giving that is senselessly beyond our means. You cannot fake that. So when that happens, you know there is a new love in town. So Paul wants to see this outpouring of generosity in Corinth, not because he needs their money, though he certainly does. If Corinth starts giving, the entire movement of the early church is funded. So he needs their money, and I promise you, he wants their money. But that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is if this wealthy, luxurious community forsakes their pleasure-seeking lifestyle to recklessly give up their wealth, then I know beyond a shadow of a doubt they are in love with Jesus. And that would bring him more joy than the joy he would get 
from having their money and meeting the needs of the church. And I can say without an ounce of hypocrisy, Will could say this, the pastoral team could say this, our session could say this, the same is true here. I mean that. It would make me so happy to see what we just talked about in that congregational meeting. It would make me so happy to see us have all the money that we need to meet the needs of this church. It would make me so happy for this church to finally be out of debt and to be released to do all of the wonderful things that God's calling us to do. All that, yes, 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 yes. But ultimately, it would make me and the leadership happy to see an outpouring like that happen here because it would be so obvious Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church is in love with Jesus because you cannot fake this. So that's what's happening in Macedonia. And that's what Paul wants to happen in Corinth. And by extension and application, that is what the leadership wants to see happen here. But Paul knows that it will never happen in Corinth. And it will never happen here unless something else happens first. He doesn't want them to simply see what was happening in Macedonia. More importantly, he wants them to see why it was happening. And this makes all the difference in the world. This is why it's not just a preacher asking you for money to pay bills. It's why this is not just conventional fundraising that everybody does. Because it's asking the question, why? What's behind it? That's what was happening. Let's answer the question, why was it happening? Return to verse 1 and notice the way Paul chooses to describe the generosity of the Macedonians. We want you to know, brothers about the what that's taking place in the church of Macedonians, about the grace of God. He calls their generosity the grace of God. Grace. Grace alone can produce giving like this, and Paul knows it. Guilt can produce giving. Duty can produce giving. Fame can produce giving. We'll put your name on the building. There's a lot of things that can produce giving, but giving like this, only grace. Only grace can produce this, and Paul knows that. He calls their generosity the grace of God, and his point is that the same grace that they have discovered is already Corinth's and ours. Look as he sums everything up in beautiful verse 9. That's the verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the scriptures. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's points to the Corinthians says, you know this grace? The same grace that has led to the outpouring in Macedonia? It's, It's yours too. And it's ours too. And if they will just drink deeply from the reckless grace of God, then it would overflow into reckless giving for God. And so Paul concludes his ask. He concludes his ask to the Corinthians for their wealth with one of the most breathtaking expositions of the grace of God you'll find in the Bible, hoping that it will capture the Corinthians' hearts and by extension our hearts. So let me close by just doing that, by dwelling on verse 9 together. No amount of guilt and no amount of gimmicks is going to help us reach our very aggressive budget this year. Only the grace of God can pull this off. So let's spend a few moments meditating on verse 9, shall we?
And may the reckless gospel make its applications upon our lives. Maybe, maybe just the reckless gospel capture you for the first time. Paul says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then because he's talking about financial giving, he chooses to describe that grace with the language of wealth. Though he was rich. Now just stop there. The gospel begins with this, is that Jesus is rich. Not just rich. Meaning eternally rich. When I say rich, I mean second person of the Holy Trinity rich. The gospel starts with Jesus is God. That all glory, all honor, all praise, all splendor, all majesty, indeed all of creation exists as the bounty of his glory. He owns all things and all things exist as his bounty. And yet though he was rich, here's the move of the gospel, he became poor. So the second step of the gospel is that God became poor. And when Paul says poor, and when we say poor, when the gospel says poor, we mean the depths of poverty. Once he inhabited an eternal throne, now inhabiting the fragile womb of a virgin. Once owning all things, now having no possessions, not even a place to lay his head at night. Once having heavenly creatures kneel before him, angels Heavenly beings that would terrify us, they kneel before him. Now, as we have seen in our series, kneeling before his disciples to wash their feet. Once exercising omnipotent sovereign power, now enduring false accusations, stripped naked, spit upon, embarrassed, shamed, beaten within an inch of his life, tortured, yet would receive it all without lifting a finger of omnipotent power. Once the glory of all existence now nailed to a cross of shame and embarrassment, the greatest embarrassment of existence. Once the wealth of the Father's favor, eternal delight in the triune favor of the Father, now the wealth of the Father's wrath, receiving the wrath that I deserve. The judge now judged, the loveliest now the ugliest, the glory now the shame. Oh, the reckless journey of the Lord Jesus Christ, moving literally from the very embodiment of wealth to the very embodiment of poverty. Why? Because bless his name, he is in love with the poor. Not the poor financially, though he does love them but the poor spiritually. Listen again. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. For our sake he surrendered his wealth so that impoverished sinners might be granted eternal riches. We, the spiritually bankrupt, and you have to admit it, you're bankrupt morally. We, the, the, the ethically destitute, just made a mess, a mockery of ethics. We who have just this insurmountable debt of sin and without a penny of righteousness to our name that we've just built up this insurmountable debt that we owe to justice of God, 
to those who are willing to admit destitution and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the grace offered to you. Jesus will bear the burdens of your poverty and give to you the riches of his inheritance. Now lose yourself in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it overwhelm you with its good news. Let it touch every impoverished area of your soul. Let it banish all lingering fears of debt owed to God. You don't owe him a penny. It's paid in full by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I accidentally paid a bill twice last month because of an unorganized mess. They sent the second one back and said, we don't need this one. It's already been paid. Every righteous act, every good deed that you think you're paying to God, he sends back and says, I don't need that. Jesus paid in full. Every bit of debt paid by the righteousness and grace of Jesus. And let it fill you to the uppermost with the wealth of reckless grace. And then, then, now it's time to ask the question, not you give so you get that from God. God has given you that. Now it's time to ask you the question, what can he not ask of you? How much is too much? And the answer is nothing. I'm not saying he's calling you to do something stupid like the Macedonians did, but I'm not saying he's not. All I know is that whatever he calls us to do, nothing compares to what he has done for us. You will never be able to outgive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's my closing question for us to consider tonight in our parish groups or in your own lives, your families, your community. Having said all that, having meditated on the recklessness of the gospel... How is God calling you to get reckless with your generosity? How is the reckless grace of Jesus calling you to likewise get reckless? How is this silly, irresponsible, prodigious gospel calling you to join your silly, irresponsible, prodigious God in giving like he has given to you? How is God calling you to get reckless? It could, it could be a significant change in your lifestyle so that you could actually start tithing to your church for the first time in your life. The first time. I'm going to get crazy to get out of debt so that I could actually do what I've always wanted to do and never been able to do it. And I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do whatever it takes so I can start tithing. It could be you are a faithful tither, but it, it's no skin off your back. You don't, right? It's just a check that goes out every month, and, and um, you don't feel the cost of it. It's not a big deal. It could be, you know what? Um, I'm going to increase that until it hurts. Until every month, my life is changed because of generosity. It could be something just, something nuts that honestly we're praying for, that you say, I'm going to get us out of debt. I'm, I'm going to get rid of the debt. That's, that is a crazy, Will is famous for his wild-ass prayer request. He has a list of things that there is no way this can happen unless God answers the prayer. And, and one of those we've added that in our sessions praying is that somehow God's going to get us out of debt this year. I have no idea how he's going to do it. I actually think he's going to do it. I actually think he's going to do it. It could be that God is saying, 
You're going to get them out of debt and release this place for generations to come and take away the crippling debt that owns us every month. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know what it means for you, but I know it means something reckless. As reckless as martyrs of the Reformation, so reckless is prosperous Americans giving up their prosperity to keep the Reformation going. And that happens because the thing that united, ignited the Reformation still compels us this day, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point. The Macedonians rejoicing in their poverty and begging to give in reckless ways, martyrs of the Reformation giving up their lives, Americans giving up their wealth. It's all the same. A reckless people captured by a reckless gospel. Let me pray. Lord, now we come to the representation and indeed spiritual act of feasting on your reckless grace. I pray that you would feed us all by the sacrament, overwhelm us by the reckless, uh, generous gospel of Jesus Christ, and we just trust you with applications wherever they run. We pray in your name and ask for your help. Holy Spirit, amen.